You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hey, Libby. Hey, Mado. So we're going to talk today about fear-based language and why it's important to notice fear-based language and to transform it into more empowering language. And I'm curious, what's got this topic on your mind? Well, this topic I think is important for a number of reasons, but it keeps coming up for me in the context of anatomy and teaching anatomy to yoga teachers, which is one of my favorite things to do, of course. And what I find is that for myself and for a lot of yoga teachers I've worked with, the more they understand about anatomy, the less afraid they are about the body. And so, and the way that our fear about the body shows up as yoga teachers is in our language. How do we speak about the body to our class? What do we say about you know, how we're doing each posture and why to do it this way versus that way. So it really shows up in all of our cueing and in the general, our general approach to the body. And what's really important about that is that how the yoga teacher speaks about the body teaches the students how to view their own bodies. So when we transform that fear-based language, it leads to more empowerment for the student. And that's what I would love to see is students walking out of yoga classes, feeling confident about their body, feeling resilient, and rather than feeling afraid of moving in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So a lot of this has been inspired by your work with yoga teachers. And I'm curious, as a student, do you remember any situations where you were in somebody's class and the way they talked about the body made an impression on you? either positively or in a fear-based way? Yes. I mean, I think early on in my yoga, as a yoga student for many years, I was in particular drawn early on to alignment-based systems where there was a big emphasis placed on correctness to do the posture this way is correct, but to do it a different way is incorrect. And honestly, at that time, I loved that. It really fed into a desire I had to be right all the time. It was sort of a personality, you know, neurosis, if you will. Like, and, and I really loved finding, oh, in yoga, I get another opportunity to be right, you know? So there's something really appealing about that. Also was appealing to sort of know the answer, but it really did leave me, um, noticing how I moved out in the world and noticing how other people were moving out in the world and starting to be like really picky about it. You know, if I would notice someone just doing a normal daily task, I'd be like, Ooh, that's not the correct way to do that. You know? And so it kind of put me on alert looking for whatever is wrong about movement. And that's a bummer, you know? And at that time I didn't know much about anatomy at all. So I didn't really have any way of knowing that my fear was unfounded and even that critical eye was really unfounded because from correctness, you know, I mentioned just the notion of there being a correct way to do a posture. It's a really slippery slope and a short slope to safety ideas about safety. It's yeah. Really and hard. I, 
yeah, it's very hard to go to correctness without slipping into safety. And I think that in the general culture that we live in, there is already a lot of conflation of the two. For example, I'm thinking about when people are taught, okay, you need to squat when you lift versus rounding your back. There are reasons that people are taught that, but it's not the full context. And when you're taught something, a concept like that in isolation of the full context of, you know, how, (laughs) what do you normally do? How heavy is this thing you're lifting? How, how heavy are the things you normally lift in your life? You know, is, if you're lifting something that is much heavier than you normally lift, yeah, definitely squat and don't bend over, but also don't build this idea in your head that bending over to pick anything up is a problem. It's, it's a matter of your specific body and that specific object and the relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the cultural context that this is swimming in, that we're all swimming in as yoga teachers, and that influences us when we show up in the yoga classroom. Mm -hmm, For sure. Because it's not just in yoga where this shows up. I, you know, I remember being at the gym at the YMCA a few years ago, I think, listening, overhearing a personal trainer work with her client, right? Just kind of, that was near them. And he had some low back discomfort that day. And he was showing up and telling her about how he was feeling. And she goes, well, we're going to just be really, really careful with your back today. You know, that type of language. And I remember sitting there thinking, ah, why did she say that? You know, now we're all, everyone's on alert, right? He's on alert. He's afraid that what they're going to do is dangerous. And we have to be very, very careful and tiptoe around movement. And that's the type of fear-based language that I'm talking about. And so it shows up everywhere, shows up in rehab settings. Certainly, I think in the medical world, patients often leave their doctor's office having been told scary stories about their body, right? Like, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with whose doctor told them they should never squat again because squatting is bad for their knees. That's all they say about it. Right. And then 10 years later, this person still hasn't done a squat and they're still afraid of it. Things like that. So I do think there's a bigger cultural context for it. I think it has to do with our lack of anatomical proficiency. Like we don't we are not taught about these bodies as we grow up as kids. You know, anatomy isn't a regular part of getting to know what we're living in here. And that's a big Uh, missed opportunity, I think. So I think that's really sets the context. So there's lack of anatomical proficiency. We don't really know what we're dealing with here. And that leads to fear. And then there's also a cultural narrative that discomfort is bad all the time. And so we have a sensation averse culture, I would say. I think discomfort has become very scary for people. And a lot of people are under the notion that They should never have discomfort in the body. And if they do, something's very wrong. Yeah. And I think maybe some of that comes from how incredibly comfortable we are now compared to any other time in human history. I mean, if you think about the cushiness of our couches and our cars and our clothes, I mean, I love bamboo clothing, you know, like that super, super soft stuff. And I put it on and I'm like, oh my God, this stuff didn't even exist when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it feels like I'm wearing air and I have this sort of, I don't know, almost out of body experience 
or these moments of recognizing how unusual this moment is in human history. Yes, I think that's absolutely spot on. We are really comfortable, those of us in, you know, living in modernized cultures where we have all this furniture to sit on. And certainly not everyone in the world is in that situation, but, but I am. And, you know, it's easy for a lot of us to go through our days and not have that much discomfort. So then when something arises in the body, some little injury or aches or in pains, then it becomes very alarming. And in general, when we don't understand something, it is scarier, right? So in the context of that kind of cultural expectation about comfort and in the context of not really understanding these bodies and what's normal to expect, well, here comes some sort of ache or pain and we start spinning out, going to the worst possible case scenario about what this could be. And it's very scary. Yeah. 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 And there's a specific term that's become more popular in the last few years, nocebic language, referring to sort of a play on the placebo effect, which Mm -hmm. is, as most people are very familiar with the placebo effect, but it's the way that our brains will respond to our expectations. So Mm -hmm. in the placebo effect, we will take, people will take a sugar pill and they will have a positive response because they were told that it was medicine basically, right? That's the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. Well, with the nocebo effect, it's the opposite. It's when we have an expectation of pain or harm that we are, our brains actually create problems for ourselves through that expectation. So can you talk about how the nocebo effect shows up in yoga and how the language that yoga teachers use when they're teaching influences that. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So yeah, nocebo is a negative outcome based on a negative expectation of a negative outcome. And in yoga classes, often you'll hear phrasing and languaging along these lines, be really, really careful. I mean, that's the most common one. Be really, really, really careful. Ah, And just that right there sends a message to the student that what we're doing is dangerous. That's what it says. And if someone has discomfort, stop immediately, you know, rather than investigating, okay, what's going on? Guess what? You're in charge of your body. You can stop anytime, right? And it's almost like sometimes yoga teachers get in this little tunnel vision where suddenly when we walk into the yoga studio, regular, normal human movements become dangerous. Whereas out in the world, if you're just kind of going to the movies with a friend or something, these same movements wouldn't be perceived as dangerous. But suddenly you're on your yoga mat and there's a safe way to step one foot forward, right? And an unsafe way to do that and things like that. And so I think it shows up in a huge way when we get into yoga class and the teacher's talking about um, number correctness and asana, the correct way to do things, but also just communicating that general mindset about the body that we're very on edge and we're um, on alert for the danger that is imminent. And how does this affect the student? So they hear these messages and what, what is the internal, both 
uh, psychological and maybe physiological things that are happening when they get these messages? Well, I think it helps form their self-concept. You know, are they living in a body that is inherently resilient and can handle normal human movement and you know, no cause for alarm? Or are they living in a body that's really fragile? And that if they've been there in either wrong way, it's going to come apart or something. I'm not sure what they specifically think is going to happen, you know, and back when I was being fed these ideas, you know, unintentionally, I think in yoga class, I wasn't sure what would happen to my knee if I bent it the wrong way or the wrong amount, but I definitely um, was aware of it. And uh, so I think it helps form their self-concept and I think it translates into them being more on alert when they're out doing normal human things in life. Sort of like for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the nervous system and what might be happening sort of below the level of our thoughts, but even on a more subtle level? Yeah. Well, if we expect things to be painful or we expect uh, something is dangerous, then any little glitch in the body or any little ache or pain that arises, we're going to have a bigger response to it. So we're poised to respond and a response to discomfort is the brain's job. I mean, if we kind of step back and look at what is pain, pain is essentially your nervous system's assessment of threat. (laughs) It's, and sometimes that's accurate. You know, if you twist your ankle, stepping off a curb and it swells up, well, that is appropriate, right? We want a big pain response to show us that we need to protect this ankle and let it heal and all that. But sometimes that response isn't as accurate and it's, it's expanded, it's magnified based on our expectations and our fears and our beliefs about what's going on. And that point, that just poises our nervous system to be on higher alert, to be a bit hypervigilant. And we know that a hypervigilant nervous system is more likely to produce a stronger pain response to all kinds of things. I'm curious as we're talking about this over the past, let's say hmm, 20 ish years, it seems like yoga shifted from a somewhat fringe, mostly spiritual activity to really being focused on the body mm-hmm. and a lot of styles really focused on pushing the body into extreme ranges of motion. So I wonder if some of the nocebic language is actually a response to some of these yoga classes that people went to and experienced this pressure or this expectation that you were going to really push your body to the end limits of your ranges of motion, which really is a pretty risky behavior, right? I mean, it's a fine hobby to have if that's your passion and there's a lot of inherent risk involved in, in pushing to the edges of your range of motion a lot over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it could be a response to that certainly. And I think you're exactly right that asana has of course become front and center in the yoga practice for most of us. And it's been sort of blended into fitness, a fitness oriented practice where yoga teachers, I think, expect themselves to be more like fitness trainers or movement experts, which is not really what yoga is interested in. And it really isn't how yoga teachers are trained. 
So, you know, I think that confuses things for sure. I think in most cases in yoga classes, the movements we're doing are pretty basic. You know, if you're teaching a really wild and crazy circus-like class, then that may be different. But in most cases, that's not really what's happening in most yoga classes, right? We're doing some lunges, forward lunges, sideways lunges, you know, we're kneeling, we're doing stuff, we're sitting, doing stuff, we're on our backs, on our bellies, just sort of basic positions of the body and basic movements that are not dangerous at all. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of thinking that perhaps the yoga teachers who are really nervous about movement are not the same ones as the ones who are teaching these extreme classes, but they've been influenced by the extreme classes and feel like they're almost in reaction to them. And they're like, I'm different. Here's how I'm different. I'm safe. I'm going to teach you to be safe. I'm going to keep you safe. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I agree. That's a really, it's almost like two prongs in a way in the asana world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's say that you are of the, I want to be a safe space school of yoga teaching. And perhaps you have instinctively, you know, taught in a way that, that was a little bit more alarming and fear-based at times. Libby, what is your advice for how to shift and transform that? Mm-hmm. Record yourself teaching. And, and listen to what you actually say. That would be step one, just to find out what are the phrases? What is the language that I use without even realizing it? You know, because when I think back to when I began teaching yoga, I used all that same language. I always said, bend your knee over your ankle to protect your knee. I said a lot of that protect your knee thing because that's what I was taught. And I didn't know any, I didn't understand the knee. So So I think recording yourself and being able to listen back is really helpful. And then, you know, there's a fine line between teaching your students what you're doing. You have to say something about the postures you're doing, especially with beginning students. There's a fine line between awareness of your body and fear of your body. Sometimes that's a tricky thing to differentiate. But language that is inherently empowering is what we want to shift to. Rather than fear-based, you know, I want my students to feel empowered to investigate the posture. I'm going to give you a starting point. I'm going to give you the basic shape. You know, you're going to bend your knee. The shape of warrior one is a forward lunge. The shape of warrior two is a sideways lunge. I can describe that a little bit. And then beyond that, I can give students cues to help them investigate how does it feel when you do this specific thing with your foot or this specific thing with your foot. And there isn't a correct answer because I'm interested in the experience of the practitioner, ideally. So so we have to give a starting point, but then we have to give some wiggle room within that, I think, and use empowering language and always remind students, listen, if you're uncomfortable, really, and you're really concerned about something, the yoga class isn't the place to address it go get it evaluated, go see your doctor, go see a physical therapist, get it fully assessed and deal with it that way. But the yoga teacher should never feel any pressure and it never put pressure on themselves to fix that for someone, right? The yoga teacher doesn't play that role. And even if they had the skills to play that role, the the yoga class isn't the place to apply them because there isn't time, right? So like, for example, when I teach yoga class, I'm not I don't have time to fully evaluate a student's discomfort. I could do that in a private session, 
But so there's that. And, and you empower your students to say, hey, if you're really concerned about this, what I can do is help you try it this way, try it that way. How does it feel? Right. That's what I can do. And in the end, I can remind that student, guess who's in charge of your body? You are all the time. So if you want to skip this posture, no big deal. Let's just throw it out for today, you know? And so that way I'm not being alarmist. I'm not saying, ah, this is so scary. Oh my God, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. You know, that type of thing. Instead I'm saying, hey, let's try it this way. Does it help? No, okay, let's just bag it for the day. No big deal. Yeah, so I think that was, you said something really important that I want to emphasize and, and dive into a little bit, which is that even you as a clinician, who has a doctorate in physical therapy and is very qualified to diagnose and help students with specific individual problems. If someone shows up at your class and says, I have wonky knees, please help me. You are not going to then give them like a mini private right then and there and help them figure out what, what's going on. I think that there are a lot of teachers who either have seen other teachers do this Mm -hmm. or for some reason, place this expectation on themselves that if somebody shows up in your class, all of a sudden you're responsible for them. Mm -hmm. And that really you should have the skill set to be able to help them figure out what's going on with their body. And if not fix it, at least adapt the practice to that individual. And what I'm hearing you say, Libby, is that that's unrealistic. That is, that is placing way too much pressure on a yoga teacher, even one who is a clinician. That is much more in integrity to set clear boundaries with our students about this is my scope of practice. This is my role. This is what's realistic inside this setting. And if you need and want more than that, then you need to make an appointment with somebody who can see you one-on-one. Exactly. I think a lot of yoga teachers place way too much pressure on themselves to fill that role. And part of it is that the students don't really know what your role is. They don't know what your training is. They don't know that you're maybe not the right person to help them figure this out in a bigger way. Again, the yoga teacher can offer modifications, try it this way, try it that way. What happens if we add a block here? What happens if we do this? You know, more like investigative. And they may have a lot of experience built up that says, oh, last time a student had a wonky knee, I added this prop and it helped. Okay, I'll try that, right? Like that's appropriate for a yoga teacher to do. But I do think it's important for yoga teachers to be able to say, hey, I don't know. I don't have the skills to assess this. And just practice saying that out loud because there's nothing wrong with that. That's much more in integrity. And it's, it's much more, you know, it's more ethical for your students. You, you can't step outside of that. So, and I agree that people have seen other yoga teachers pretend to know without doing an assessment (laughs) and, you know, state their claim really strongly. And I think that's absolutely unethical. It would be so for me to do that too, just like you mentioned, right? So again, I think in some cases it's, it's like a hubris thing, but I think in most cases it's, an anxiety thing. And I do, I certainly think some yoga teachers are a little bit over, they have an overinflated idea about what they can do, but most are just wanting to do the right thing. And they're nervous and they're putting a lot of pressure on themselves and they haven't maybe practicing. I don't know. 
Don't you think that in the scheme of things that there's a lot of power and I personally have a lot of respect, like I actually develop respect for teachers who say it that way. Like, I don't know. And I'm, you know, the subtext is I shouldn't be expected to know. Like, it's okay that I don't know. I know a lot of other stuff. Exactly. And that other stuff is what people are coming to yoga for really. And that's the magic of yoga. I mean, what yoga teachers have to offer is enough. That's one. That's the other thing I would say. They shouldn't expect themselves to be a physical therapist and a nutritionist and all these other things for people. The yoga is what you want to bring to your class. And in the end, I don't think people, I don't think most people come to yoga to to do anything other than feel better by the end of class. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the number one thing that people want when they head out the door and say, I'm going to yoga class, or they turn on their computer and say, I'm going to attend this, this online class. Mm -hmm. What they really want is to feel better in 50, 60, 75 or 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They want to feel more connected to their body. They want to feel connected to their breath, maybe to other people, right. They want to get some traction on their day and uh, get centered and, and all that and nourish their bodies and minds. So you don't have to be an, a movement expert to provide that for your students. And there was another thing you said that I wanted to go back to, oh, it was just that you shouldn't be expected to know, right? When you say, I don't know, there's also the subtext that's like, I shouldn't be expected to know and that is true. And it goes back to this little phrase I like, which is mind the gap, mind the gap. And there's always a gap between what we know right now and what we could know, what there is to know. And we all have that gap. And so part of it is knowing that there is the gap. So if we don't know about the gap between knowledge amounts, then we will expect ourselves to know more than we know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a lot of mm -hmm. But but we all have the gap. So humility is knowing that there's a gap and knowing where you are in the knowledge continuum. And when it gets beyond your wheelhouse, you just say, I don't know. When there's there's a tendency, I think, among some yoga teachers to want to appear authoritative. But again, I think that leads us into more problems. You know, I mean, I think that showing up as a leader in the classroom is not a problem, right? Showing up is saying, this is my space. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one who sets the tone. I'm going to be the one who creates the plan. You can opt in or out, but when you can be really confident in what is your role, it's a lot easier to let go of the pieces that aren't yours, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the pieces that aren't yours are micromanaging, whether or not people follow your plan, making sure that people with injuries don't do anything unsafe. That's, that's on them, right? Mm -hmm. It's on them to learn what their limitations are and avoid anything that is not appropriate for them. You want to help them. You want to offer suggestions, but actually keeping them safe. That's, that's not on you. What else, what else is, and isn't the role of a yoga teacher? I think the role of the yoga teacher is keep giving the power back to the student. Absolutely. And that, that tone that says, Hey, I'm not in charge of you. You're in charge of you. And just like you said, I'm kind of, I own the space. I'm teaching this class. I'm setting the vibe. I'm setting the tone. Part of that tone is that 
I want you to learn about you as the student. I want you to get comfortable in your own body. And I'm here to help you do that. But in the end, I am not in charge of you. I don't want to take your power. It really, I mean, our language says everything about how we believe, you know, power. What is the power dynamic here? And there's such a huge history of exploitation of power in all settings. And yoga is included in that. And we don't need to go into you know, a huge discussion of that, but I think it's relevant to what language we're bringing into our yoga teaching right now in 2022 is, um, are we going to sort of further promote this idea that I'm hold power over my students as a yoga teacher, or am I going to play a different role, which is confident and owning what I'm doing and also empowering my students to know themselves and to move the student in that direction to give them their power. I think that's really huge. And the other piece is, you know, we were talking about how do you transform this if you have a tendency to use nocebic language? There is that overarching, how do you respond to people's discomfort? That's huge because you might be nervous inside, but you want to always play it cool on the outside and reflect that with your language. But there's also just specific cues if you hear yourself use a cue that is nocebic, for example, bend your front knee over your ankle, but not any farther because we have to protect the knee, things like that, then you got to figure out why it is you're saying that. There may be a reason that is acceptable to you, but if it's unexamined, right, if it's if it's hinting at or more explicitly telling your students that this is unsafe to do this with our knee, you have got to know why you're saying it. Otherwise, you're purely misleading everybody. So learn about it. Figure it out. If you're like, huh, why do I say that? Oh, yeah, it's just because that one teacher in my teacher training taught me to say that, but I never really understood why. Hmm, let's get to the bottom of that. And that is where anatomy comes in. You have to learn about the body in order to know how to speak about the body. Yeah, mm -hmm. say more about that. How does learning anatomy help yoga teachers in being able to evaluate their cues and their language? Well, you know, learning anatomy, so many things. Like in the case of bend your front knee and warrior two or warrior one, you can learn that, okay, the reason I say that is just because that's the shape of this pose. It's generally the shape, I'm describing a shape, but let's get to know the knee. What happens when we bend it more? Let's happen, you know, what happens when it's weight bearing versus not weight bearing? Let's look at the knee in all these different ways. Turns out the knee's designed to bend all the way and straighten all the way, whether it's open chain or closed chain. And let's go investigate how the knee is used functionally, going up my stairs, getting up off my toilet. Oh, look at that. Even in other postures, you know, oftentimes when someone brings up this knee over your ankle bit, in warrior two, let's just say, for example, I'll say, well, how about the knee in Malasana, a deep squat? Are you concerned about the knee there? Because I will guarantee it goes past your ankle there. Why do we care about it here and not here? You know, that's like a good aha moment. And so that's just one example. And then the other one is what, how much movement should I expect in my students? If I learn about the hip joint, for example, I can learn about what's the normal range of motion in the hip. How much do normal hips flex? How much do they extend? How much do they rotate? And then when I'm teaching a posture, let's say that involves hip rotation, I can 
visually kind of see that my students are probably going to fall somewhere in the normal ranges of motion, but I'm not going to expect more, you know, and, and I'm going to be more okay with seeing variety in my students. That's the other thing. When you learn about anatomy, you learn about variation. You learn there's a big range of normal. Our bones are all shaped differently. They're put together at different angles. Um, there's no reason to expect all of the students in my class to visually look the same in each posture because their bodies aren't the same. So those are the types of things. And then right off the bat, you've taken the pressure off yourself to make your students all look the same in each posture. And then you've got some really good opportunity to ask, okay, well, then what do I care about? If not the form, if not the particular form, what else is there to really get interested in here? And that's where we get into actual yoga. Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking, I was also thinking about how learning anatomy helps you visualize what's going on underneath the surface, right? So mm -hmm. instead of looking at the surface of the pose, the external part, you actually start to recognize how similar postures are similar and aren't similar. So then you can help people find a variation that really gives the same effect for their body, even though it might look different on the outside. And then by starting to go beneath the skin, like you were talking about, you become more comfortable and, and able to be present with a lot of different variations and understand how they're actually the same. And I think that that entry beneath the skin is it's sort of like the next layer, but there's more, there's more depth beyond that, right? Beyond the bones and the muscles, then, then we start to get more subtle into the nervous system, into the, the brain and the mind and even beyond. So I love that, that it's like this journey from outside in and from the external forum into the internal experience. And that's really why yoga is such a beautiful practice. It's this, the complexity and the the spectrum of experiences that it encompasses. I think that's what attracts it. That's what attracts so many of us to yoga. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, asana practice has a role to play in the context of yoga. Asana is a piece of the yoga tradition and it has a role to play within that context. And its role isn't to fix your body or to fix your warrior two. Its role is far more interesting. And, and practicing asana helps us arrive in our bodies so that we can keep going inward. We got to start here in the grossest layer and then we keep going. So it's an anchor. It's a tether, you know, to our experience as it happens in the moment. So again, you know, there's a fine line between describing a shape and then um, getting obsessive about the form of that shape, describe the shape and then go in. That's always our direction in yoga class. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think asana can be very profound, but not when we get caught up in fixing mode and uh, notions that aren't even accurate about correctness and safety. And we're just distracted. Exactly. It's a distraction. It's such a beautiful gift to study anatomy and to devote yourself as a student, right? It's, you were talking about hubris and humility and how when you enter the, your studies and even your teaching from a place of humility, from a place of, I'm a student, just like you, I'm going to hold space for your studentship during this class time, but I'm not like 
the all-knowing, all-seeing authority here, mm-hmm. then there's this opportunity to actually deepen your own practice through your, your teaching, where it may be that your motivation for studying anatomy is because you want to help your students. You want to be a better teacher for your students, but ultimately that study is going to help you understand yourself better and your own experience of walking through the world. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that's one of the biggest gifts of being a yoga teacher is the way that these two roles mesh with each other and support each other. Yep. I totally agree. I mean, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Exactly. I love teaching Yeah, because I can always be learning and always get new layers of insight into really basic things. So I absolutely agree. And so many teachers, I think, have that experience as they learn about the body. They're like, oh, so yeah, I mean, I think anatomy study is super empowering. That's always what I want it to be. I want people to be empowered. I want people to feel more confident in this very resilient, highly adaptable body that they live in, no matter what it's been through, you know, it heals and it adapts. And then we can have reverence for it as well and learn how to honor its limits in its talking to us. And we learn how to listen to it, all those things. I think it's super empowering. Same. Absolutely. So as we wrap up today, is there anything left that you haven't talked about that you were hoping to share or any concepts that you did share that you want to really emphasize? I guess I would just emphasize just because I know anatomy is intimidating for people. And I think sometimes people approach anatomy like, oh, if I get, if I study anatomy, it means I'm going to have to even become more expert, right? I have to know even more the right thing to say, because now I study anatomy. And so it can kind of almost take us in the wrong direction in a way. So I just want people to know it doesn't have to take you in that direction. It doesn't have to make you more righteous about what, how to do yoga, I guess, let's say it can actually lead to more freedom for you and your students. So true. And I love that that was what you wanted to share at the end. That's really beautiful and perfect. If anyone listening wants to learn more about you and find out about your work, where should they go? They should go to anatomybites.com. So I offer a monthly membership program for yoga teachers who want to learn anatomy and it's called anatomy bites. And so if you go to anatomybites.com, you can get on the waiting list or on the email list to learn about that when the doors open for new members, which we do a two or three times a year. And um, you can learn more about some of my offerings on there as well. I also have my personal website, just LibbyHinesley.com. Great. Thank you so much, Libby. As always, such a pleasure getting to talk to you. These are some of my favorite episodes. So thank you. Thanks for having me.